scripture today is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you, because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus, but beyond that I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning uh, and welcome. It's officially the first Sunday of 2015, and I've already heard from some of you that uh, when you woke up and realized how cold it was and that there was a chance for snow, you almost said, well, I'm going to go back to bed. (laughs) And I think many people chose that option today, uh, and so thank you for braving it. Here you are. You're at church, hoping you haven't made a terrible mistake. Um, And if you're new here, that's that's hard enough as it is. you feel like you're maybe surrounded by some strangers, people you've never met before, trying to figure out what's going on, or maybe this isn't just your first time here, but your first time in any church in a long time. Um, welcome. And, and you may not even be sure of what you believe or how you found yourself here this morning on this cold day. Um, so you have two burning questions in the back of your mind, so let me just answer them quick. They're common sense questions. How weird is this going to get? <laughs> And when is this going to be over? <laughs> right? Uh, I get it. I get it. Uh, so two, let me just answer them for you quickly. One, uh, weirdness is relative. So my word of advice is just assume the worst and it'll probably turn out okay. Um, and then secondly, <laughs> and when does this get over? We end around noon and uh, we're, we're getting close to that. So I think you can make it to the end. Um, here's the thing. We all know it's intimidating to come to a church for the first time right? Um, Everybody else seems to know what they're doing, kind of, Um, and everybody else except for you may seem like they've got their lives together, Um, but here's a little secret. Uh, You don't have to be new to feel that way. Some of you who have been engaged in the church for a while or have been coming to Christ's community for a while, a new year in and of itself can feel really daunting. 
You remember walking through these doors or doors of another church uh, last year, the first Sunday of the new year? All your dreams, all your hopes, all your goals. And here you are, 2015, feeling hardly any different. (laughs) Surrounded by maybe the same smiling faces, happy families, well-dressed, kind of well-behaved folks. And maybe you walk through those doors this morning trying to keep a resolution you've had every year. Just maintain the image. Maintain the image. Keep the smile going. Hold up the facade. And I just want to tell you from the get-go, this isn't going to be a feel-good message. It's like, hey, keep your goals this year. You can do it. It's not an easy optimism, a fake optimism, that this year is going to be better than the last. It might not be. I don't know. Um, But what we're going to do is we're going to have a moment where we're going to talk about and remember who we are. Okay? We're going to start by remembering who we are, and we're going to provide some space to be real. Don't start sweating. It's not going to be touchy-feely in your face. Okay? Um, Here's the thing. I heard a song that's kind of depressing. I heard it this past week. Good way to start the new year, right? Um, Called Dollhouse by Melanie Martinez. Maybe some of you have heard of it. Um, As soon as I heard it, I thought about us. Uh, She's not singing about the church. She's just singing about life in general. But many times when we hear these words, the words I'm about to tell you, many of us think about the church in this way. And she says, places, places, everyone get in your places. Throw on your dresses. I, I don't think that. Throw on your dresses and put on your doll faces. Everyone thinks we're perfect, but please don't let them look behind the curtain, right? If you're new here or you're new to this whole Jesus thing, I just want to warn you. You've probably heard uh, that Christians are hypocrites. Um, Well, they're right. Uh, Christians are hypocrites, you know. There's so much even in my own life that I have to wrestle through and think, okay, how am I intentionally or unintentionally just trying to keep an image going? Even though there's so much messed up in my life, just like all of us here, and I'm trying to maintain an image. Now, there's also this other article I read, just to kind of keep building this evidence here. There's an article from The Onion, this mockumentary news website. You know, some of you know about it. And it's titled, uh, where is it at? Six-day visit to rural African village completely changes woman's Facebook profile picture. You know, that's the change. That's as deep as it gets. Facebook profile picture. And the cynicism, it cuts deep because we know it's true. We define so much of our life by the images we project. And I want to take a time out this morning and say, who are you trying to kid? Who are we trying to kid with all of this that we're trying to project? Look, I know, I know we're worlds apart from this church in Corinth. We just heard the opening of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. And in one sense, we couldn't be any more different. And yet, <laughs> we couldn't be any more different because they speak Greek, we speak English. You know, they had the naked Olympics. We've got baseball. Um, but here's the deal. The same reason that Paul wrote this letter to them in the first century is the same reason we need to hear it afresh to us today. You see, Paul writes, yeah, Christians, you look really good. God's doing something. He's changing people. He's working in that community just like he's doing here, and it's beautiful. Yet, behind the Facebook profile pic, behind the facade and the fake smiles is a big old mess. And Paul's saying, who are we trying to kid? Who are we trying to kid? Now, we're going to find ourselves in this uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to be settling here for the next six months, so buckle up. Um, It's a long ride, but it's going to be fun. It's about the journey, not just the destination. 
Didn't you hate that, you know, as you're growing up? So anyway, it's true. Um, And what we're going to find is that this letter is written to a church that's a lot like us. It's wrestling through a lot of the same issues. It's messy. And we're calling it a beautiful mess. Pretty much sums up the human experience, doesn't it? And as we walk through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see Paul guide us in helping tear down that facade. Because God has so much more in store for us than just portraying an image. But real whole life transformation, God loves us more than just to give us a nice image, but to really transform us as a whole. Now the trouble is, the same as we do today, they in the first century, in this small little church in Corinth, began to believe their own act. They began to believe their own lies. And this is, kind of the, this is one of the major dangers of hypocrisy, is it slowly enslaves us to our own deception that we forget what's real and what's not. Well, Paul, he doesn't pull any punches, and he gives us a reality check on who we are. You are the church, you've got a lot of things going for you, so much going for you, but you're a stinking mess. You're the church, you've got so much going for you, but you're a stinking mess. Who are you trying to kid? Who are we trying to kid? Now, we're going to start where Paul starts before we get into all that, and he starts off pretty positively. He says, they are the church. You are the church. And right here in chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in Corinthians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some on the flip side on the dividers there. I encourage you to grab it. Um, We're going to be making our way through that. Don't feel awkward if you need to get up and get one. Um, Or you can just yell at Mike and he'll grab you one. Um, But as we look in chapter 1, verse 1, we find out about the author of this letter. It's a guy by the name of Paul. Some of us know him. Some of us don't. Um, He was an apostle. That's how he self-designates himself here. An apostle is someone who has experienced the resurrected Jesus Christ and comes with a certain authority to proclaim the gospel. And, and he's coming, but he's not always been this high, you know, this authoritarian, you know, this apostle with authority and this great missionary. Before Paul met Jesus, he not only persecuted Christians, but he joined with people in killing Christians. That's about as far on the opposite extreme as you can get, right? And... He's on his way to a place called Damascus on this road, and the resurrected Jesus confronts him. It changes his life, and he heads in a completely different direction. And it goes about actually planting some 20 churches in his lifetime, one of which is this church in Corinth. And he goes on to write about a third of the New Testament. Pretty significant dude. Um, And what Paul knows about himself as he's writing to this church, this beautiful mess, is that he himself is a beautiful mess. He's not coming, acting like he's got his whole life all together, but he himself is a beautiful mess. He's got a peppered past. As for Corinth, this place, this church is located. It's a major urban center, strategically located for trade and commerce. And what that does is it draws people from all kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, and belief structures. It's a pretty pluralistic. It's got a lot of different um, cultural groups and belief groups in the city. A lot like Kansas City, actually. And we have uh, the layout of the city from the ruins that we've dug up around the time of Paul, just in case you thought I was making this up. Um, There it is. That's all that picture was for. It was just to prove I'm not making this up. And then around uh, 50 AD, which is about 20 years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Apostle Paul, he meets two people, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, And they go into Corinth, and they're there 18 months. 18 months proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming that God has become human 
in Jesus Christ, and He's come to redeem us from our mess as Lord and Savior. And you must submit to Him as the true Lord of the universe and receive Him as your Savior. And then slowly, a small church begins to gather in a really big city. Well, eventually, this church grows in stability. And so Paul moves on to go plant the next church in a place called Ephesus. And that's the place he's at when he's writing the letter to the church in Corinth. Now, he writes a first letter to the church in Corinth. We don't have that one. And then they write back with some questions and some pushback. Paul, what are you talking about here? This doesn't make any sense. Help me here. Help me there. And then the, the letter that we're going to be walking through is Paul's second letter. Even though it's 1 Corinthians, it's actually his second letter. I know it's confusing. Stay with me. Um, there goes your note sheet. Make sure you have one. Um, this is his second letter. And he's writing to this church... He loves them, but he's frustrated with them intensely. And it's in the mid-50s A.D. that he writes, and he begins reminding them who they are. He begins reminding us who we are, even in this very moment. So verse 2, look at verse 2 with me. The church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Right here, we find who we are. We find who they are, but we also find who we are. He calls them the church, okay? They're the church located in Corinth. They have a specific geographical location where they gather together regularly. And they're also uniquely connected with all local churches, with all people who proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And what's so beautiful Right here from the get-go is we see that the church isn't their idea. It's not Paul's idea, but the church is God's idea. And Paul wants to emphasize this. They are the church of God. He's called them. He's brought them together. And that's why there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian who thinks they don't need the church. If they don't think they need the church, then they don't understand the gospel. Because that's an area of arrogance that we don't need people to speak into our lives. And we've totally missed the boat on what it means to be saved and redeemed and called. Whenever God calls us to himself in Jesus, he calls us together with others. The New Testament doesn't have a framework for a Christian who's out by themselves ignoring the church. And this is what Paul says. He says, you are the church. You're called together. And this is God's idea. And then he goes on to highlight all these great things they've got going for them. Okay, so you are the church, and you've got so much going for you. And in verse 4, he begins to tell them, Hey, every time I think about you guys, I just give thanks to God for all the great things he's given you guys. And he starts giving them a list. So I just want to recap through this list really quickly of everything good that God has given him, and he's given their church, the church. Verse 5, In every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. They love eloquence which is another way of saying they love looking good when they're talking. (laughs) Once again, we get back to this image, which is weird for me while I'm preparing a sermon. (laughs) I'm like, oh, do I just want to sound good or do I really want to proclaim the gospel and not worry about how I sound? But there's a real sense of they just care about how they sound. And when it comes to the knowledge piece, it doesn't go deep. They're not as concerned about what they're saying, but how they look when they say it. And Paul's, yes, he's affirming them, 
But there's also some irony going on here. And then when you get to verse 7, he says they're not lacking in any spiritual gift. They've got all the spiritual gifts, even the really cool ones. And yet they're using these spiritual gifts in self-serving ways such that a good gift becomes toxic in the community. And then he affirms them and says, hey, wait for the revealing of our Lord. You're waiting for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end. And the irony here is, yes, he's affirming them, but also there's the reality that we'll find out later that they're not waiting for anything. They think they've arrived. They think they're the finished product. That Jesus Christ has already done all his work in their life and they can just put their feet up and they are the pinnacle of what it means to be a Christian. And then in verse 9, just to recap here, verse 9, Paul starts off with just such a beautiful reality that there's hope for them yet, that God is faithful. In the midst of all this, he says, God isn't finished with you yet. God is faithful to continue to do his work. Paul's genuinely affirming them. He's like, you've got so much going for you, and yet they're reading between the lines. They have to. With this email correspondence, letter correspondence, they have back and forth, they know what's going on here. Paul's affirming, but he's also setting up to, uh, to, to correct them, to guide them, and to help them grow. And so he's saying, yeah, you're the church. You've got so much going for you, but who are you trying to kid? You're a stinking mess. And that's when really verse 10 starts to make sense. Because then he goes on to say, hey, you've got all these divisions. You've got all these fights going on amongst you. And we're going to talk more about this in a couple weeks because he comes to it a little bit later in the letter. But they're all taking sides. It's kind of like they're all fighting over who's their pastor. Well, Gabe's my pastor. That's me, by the way. Uh, you know, Kenny, that's the guy I follow. Mike, he's my pastor. Well, and then, then you have this other special holier-than-thou group that says, oh, well, that's really good for you. I follow Jesus. And you're like, come on, really? Give me a break. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of this division and these fightings that are going on in this little church. As we go through these 16 chapters over the next six months, we're going to find a church that's messy. People who proclaim that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, we're going to find out are celebrating incest. We're going to find a group of people who are having sex with prostitutes. We're going to find a group of people who are saying on the opposite extreme in the same church, married couples shouldn't have sex. And you're like, what is going on? And then they're going to, we're even going to be talking about homosexuality. That'll be a really fun Sunday. Um, yeah, that stuff's going on in the first century. This is a real text dealing with real people, and they're not all that different than us. Also, we're going to see that Christians are taking other Christians to court over lawsuits. We're going to find that they, they still haven't figured out what to do with idolatry in their civic life. We're going to find that at the Lord's Supper, the really wealthy are getting drunk on the communion wine. That changes things up to <laughs> the rest of your service. And, and the, those who are more disenfranchised and poor, they don't even get a sip. You know, I'd hate to be that guy, you know. Um, and, and they have these spiritual gifts and they're using them for self-serving means this is a messed up crew. Yeah, they're the church. They've got so much going for them, but they're a stinking mess. And even at the end of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, we're going to find there's a lot of folks who are even denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're saying following Jesus, it doesn't matter if he rose again from the dead or not. And Paul has some words. But even with all of this, the real problem with this church isn't that they have problems. Every church has problems. The problem with this church isn't that it has problems. If you drive down Southwest Trafficway and you come down to 39th, 
you'll come to a place called Missy Bees. Um, and I was driving by and caused a bit of a traffic jam. But the, Missy Bees has its rules. Everybody's got the rules. Even if they say, we have no rules, that's your rule, is not to have rules. They have rules to come in. It's a bar. And they say, you must leave your problems at the door. If you're not here for a good time, please don't enter. There's not, there's not a greater picture of what's opposite of what the church should be. Here at the church, we don't leave our problems at the door and smack on a smile. We come and we bring our problems. We know we're a mess. And we have the freedom to finally be honest that each and every one of us is a bit screwed up. <laughs> right? To them, though, in Corinth, everything was polished Instagram photos and uplifting Twitter handles. And they're proud of who they are. They brag about it. But God isn't finished with them. He loves them too much to leave them in their hypocrisy and how much that destroys them. Now, you may be thinking, Gabe, we're nothing like this church. And you might be right. You know, we're not nearly as messed up as them. We've got our image and we do a pretty good job of keeping it up around here. But what I love about what Paul says to them in chapter 4, and we need to hear this afresh when we enter into this letter. In verse 14, he says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. I'm not writing these things to make you feel awful about yourself. Okay? That's not my goal. But to admonish you as my beloved children. He planted this church and he wants to see them grow and flourish as human beings in Jesus Christ. And then you get down to verse 21. And he says, what do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And so with outrage and tears, Paul is crying out, who are you trying to kid? Who are you trying to kid? If you've ever really loved someone, you understand what Paul's talking about there. There are moments in relationships where you come with outrage and tears, and you want the best for them, and you just want them so desperately to hear you. And I think one of my biggest fears is that we're going to become just like this church in Corinth. Maybe not all the same issues, although you're going to find, and I consistently find how relevant still this letter 2,000 years ago written is for us today. But I'm afraid we're going to become self-assured, comfortable, and oblivious to our own hypocrisy and start feeling really good about ourselves and totally avoiding our problems. Who are we trying to kid? Who am I trying to kid? That's a question each one of us should ask. I ask it of myself. And as I read these first 17 verses and as we look to the next six months, this whole letter of 1 Corinthians... Three things jumped out at me. I think that'll help us. Three action steps to stop, start, and keep doing. Okay? Three things that I think will impact everything else you try to do this new year. Three things that'll explode and influence how you read 1 Corinthians. Okay? Here they are. First, you've got to stop taking credit for the good in your life. You heard me right. That may sound weird. You have to stop taking credit for the good in your life. And this was the first mistake for the church in Corinth, is that they did take credit for the good in their life. And the more we get in the habit of taking credit for the good in our life, the more we become convinced that God owes it to us, that other people owe it to us, that we finally arrived and that we're better than others. You know, but Paul here, verses 4 through 9, are a testament. Every good thing we have is from God. That's what he's making a point. It's 100% grace. Every good thing, which is really hard for me to get through my thick skull because I start thinking, I'm smart. I've got good habits, you know. I, I live a pretty decent life. I deserve some of that good. I deserve all of it, or at least part of it. 
which is really convenient because then we can look down on other people like that, right? It's so easy to look down our noses as soon as we start saying, I deserve those good things. And when other people don't get them, it's because they didn't deserve them. And we forget that being simply born in this country, being a citizen of this country, being a guest of this country, we have more advantages than 99% of the people who have ever lived. And yet we take credit for it. But look at all the good things I've done. Really? We're going to go there? Paul highlights later, we're going to see that good things come to us not because we are the strongest and the smartest, but actually God's working in us because we're the weakest and the foolish. He's going to highlight this. It puts us in our place in the best sense. You see, religious people, which can easily be most of us in here, religious people start to expect that the good things in our life are the things we deserve. Because they're doing the right actions. They're doing the right activities. Good should come to me. But gospel people, Jesus people, they know it's 100% grace. And that's why we not only repent of the destructive of the sinful activities we engage in towards others, ourselves, and before God, but also we repent and confess of the good things, the healthy things we've done towards others, ourselves, or God, driven by lousy motives. It gets down to the very heart of who we are, behind the facade, behind the Facebook profile pic. We know how broken and messy we are, even in our motives. Everything, everything, everything flows from grace. So stop taking credit for the good in your life. And instead, secondly, start daily admitting how far you still have to go. Start daily admitting how far you still have to go. You know, Paul's going to say later that as soon as you think you're strong enough to stand on your own two feet by yourself, get ready because you're about to fall. (laughs) If you think you've arrived, you haven't even started the journey, is his way of saying. And look, the problem with the church in Corinth Corinth isn't their problems, remember? It's that they can't even see their problems. They're blind to their own problems. And we're in the same danger of doing the exact same thing. So how do we see what we can't see? That's that's the crux of the issue, isn't it? How do we see what we can't see? Well, I want to give you three warning signs to begin to see the things you can't see because we so often put up even a facade or a fakeness within our own hearts. One warning sign, starting off, is when we start taking the good things we've done too seriously. And we start saying, man, I'm awesome. And usually this percolates in conversations you're having. Where are you going? Oh, I'm going to bring a meal to a sick family. Oh, great, man, that's, you're awesome. Yeah, I know. The, the, other side, the other side is, you know, not only do we start taking the good things we do too seriously, but we don't take our sin, the destructive habits that we do, seriously enough. Oh, but Gabe, that's not that important. God. Seriously, in the grand scheme of things, we're going to talk about this. I mean, there's kids starving in Africa, and you want to talk about this? We don't take our sins seriously enough. And what ends up happening is we think we've arrived, and everyone else hasn't. This shows itself, I think, in conversations I've had, or even feelings I've had, to be transparent. You start pointing the finger and say, yeah, but look at them, they're hypocrites. This is a common argument for the church. Look at them, they're hypocrites. Well, aren't you? Ever a hypocrite? Yeah, but I admit that I'm a hypocrite. Oh, well, aren't you better? Because you can admit you're a hypocrite. And right there, you begin to see the facade you're building. You want to be better than everybody else so bad that you have to point at other people who are hypocrites, even though you're a hypocrite. And the one level that gives you the edge, that gives you the arrogance above everyone else, 
is at least I can admit it. Really? That's a warning sign. You've got some deep problems in your heart that you've got to deal with. Second warning sign is when you stop thinking you need people. You stop thinking you need people. And the first warning and the second warning kind of go in tandem many times. And what happens when we think we don't need people is we think that church is pretty optional. Church is pretty optional because we don't need people to speak into our lives. I've got this under control. Thank you very much. I'm pretty good. You're not going to tell me anything I don't know already. I can do this on my own and pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Or even, let's say, let's, let's get real, real. Um, you've been in a community group in the past. And you were there, and that facade was even stronger than ever. Because you, you attended the community group, but you ne- never let anybody past what was really going on, past the facade. You sat there, you prayed together, you gave a couple unspoken prayer requests. I got some stuff going. But you never let anybody in because you really don't think if you tell them anything that they have to say will help you. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But you can't survive without people. You haven't made it. Look, I saw The Hobbit for my birthday, um, not because I'm 12. And trust me, I wear this scruff just to prove it. Um, but here's the deal. One of my favorite things about uh, the Lion or the Lion King. <laughs> that totally. I don't know Freudian slip, whatever that is. I don't know what that is. Um, uh, you know, the reason I love the Lord of the Rings and its precursor, The Hobbit. Uh, even though The Hobbit was made later, you know the books. It's before. Um, what I love about it is, no matter how hard you search, you can't find the one true ultimate hero. Right? This is a band of brothers going through this journey. They have a common goal. They're on the same journey together. And not any one of the characters can make it without the group. And we hear these stories and we think, oh, that's a really neat fairy tale. And we begin to think that we're a whole lot different. Well, you're not. I'm not. I can't make it on my own. You can't make it on your own. And just to kind of plug it again, we got community groups coming in a couple weeks. This is crucial, but it's more than just signing up for community groups. That's step one. And that's eight weeks where you meet weekly. You're diving into scripture and prayer together with others. But don't just attend. Let people attend you. You know what I'm saying? Let people engage you. Get to know the real you. Otherwise, you're going to go through eight weeks and say, well, that was worthless. Well, of course it was. Because you didn't let community groups do what they're supposed to do. Provide safe space for vulnerability to be real about your mess. That takes trust. It takes time. I get it. But go into community groups with that as the goal. You can't make it without people. You can't make it without people. Third warning sign that, you, that, that shows that you really think you've arrived, that you're the pinnacle human being, whether you want to admit it or not, that's how you feel is if you're never engaged in the spiritual disciplines daily of scripture reading and prayer. Because what those communicate, scripture reading communicates, okay, I can't make it without God speaking into my life through his word. What prayer communicates is saying, I can't handle this mess on my own. God, you've got to help. That's what those two disciplines continually train you to remember. God's got to speak into my life if I'm going to make it. I've got to give my mess to him if I'm going to make it. And if you're not engaged in those, it's because you think you're okay. Oh, I don't have time for that. You don't understand my schedule. No, every one of us has time for that. We've got more devices anymore in our culture that make time, and somehow we easily fill it with all kinds of other things that we think are really, really important. 
And once again, to say it in the words of Paul, I'm not saying this to make us feel ashamed. I feel this. I'm saying it to admonish us, to help us really live into the life that God's designed us to live. Because I want that for you. I want that for myself. And just to make it easy as best we know how, um, we're providing what's called Open Here. You've heard us talk about it, I'm sure. Um, in, In two ways. One, if you don't have a Bible, take one off the back of those tables and take it home. And then grab a bookmark over at the guest table. And what it is, is it's daily Bible reading passages. Short, simple, uh, maybe like five minutes to read it, max. And what they do is those passages also connect with what we talk about on Sunday morning. So it enriches even your Sunday morning time together here with us. And, and I'd encourage you to start there. If, if not a Bible and a bookmark, you use your iPad or your iPhone, then go online and sign up for Open Here on our website, and we'll send you an email with the passage. Everybody checks their email. That's a habit we're all used to. And you can even listen to the passage being read to you on your phone. Now, if that doesn't work for you, I can't help you, and we've got bigger issues with time management that we need to have conversations about. But the reason I say this is because you haven't arrived. We haven't arrived. We need God to speak into our lives. We need to come back to him with prayer. And if you don't, if you don't make the margin for that, it's because you think you've arrived. You're fine without it. You know, I just started reading a New York Times bestseller. It's called The Power of Habit. Anybody heard of it? Uh, Brilliant book. It's about the neurology uh, behind habit forming, um, how you make habits, how you break habits, the science behind it all. And... uh, Duhigg, one of his biggest points there is most of our lives, most of what we do is the execution of habit. Just as a side note, this is why when people say, oh, I'm just going to do this once to try it out, that's not the way it works. You're slowly building a habit of destruction in your life, and it's going to take you further than you want to go. Even when you're going to try to hit the brakes, the natural gas is going to keep pulling you. Well, that sounds interesting, natural gas. That didn't mean to come out that way. But you know what I mean. It's going to keep pulling you farther than you want to go. That's the nature of habit and destructive habits and sin. And what, what he says is most of our lives is really an execution of habit, most of it. So if you want to start a new habit this year, really easy. I'm talking five seconds a day. We've got to have that, right? Five seconds. That is really the catalytic habit for the other three warning signs to tackle these other three issues in our life. Pray daily. Pray daily, Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Start daily admitting how far you still have to go by just saying, Lord, I need you. Need you. Wake up in the morning. You get in your shower. You get dressed. You drink your coffee. And right before you get in the car, Lord, I need you. Admit your dependence. Admit you have so much further to go and you can't make it on your own. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. So so stop taking credit for the good in your life. Replace it by start daily admitting how far you still have to go. And then thirdly, thirdly, keep praying for an open mind. There are going to be plenty of times when you're reading 1 Corinthians, when we're here on a Sunday morning gathered together wrestling through 1 Corinthians and what God is telling us And it's going to chafe against your desires, your dreams, your passions, your normal ways of doing things, even if they're broken ways of doing things. Because even though they may be broken, we're afraid to try something else because we don't think there are other options out there. I can guarantee you, as modern people reading 1 Corinthians, there's going to come a point where you're going to say, Paul, welcome to the 21st century. (laughs) 
God, you, you really expect me to believe? You can't be serious, you know? And you're going to be wrestling through the text. So as you read, as you listen, as you engage, keep praying that God would give you an open mind to what he has to say in his word. You know, Paul's, he's like a really good parent or a really good friend. Some of the best friends we have say the hard things. Even when we want to tell ourselves lies or even when we want the people around us to lie to us because we don't really want to face the truth, they tell us the truth. They call together the intervention when we're stuck in addiction, right? And it scares us to death. That's why we got to pray. Keep praying that God would give us an open mind to the truth of his word. One of my favorite things about our culture right now, not all of our culture is bad, but there's a really great value in our culture towards authenticity, right? We want, we want to be real. And many times when we say that, we don't want to pay the price to be real. We'd rather somebody tell us a really comfy lie that we feel good about rather than be real. Well, I want to challenge you to be real. Pursue the difficulty of truth, even when the, the comfort of a lie seems really appealing. Pursue the difficulty of the truth of God's word. Pray that, that God would continue to give you an open mind to the truth of his word. And I'm not going to lie to you, this, this series is going to stretch you just like it stretched the early church in Corinth. And it's just so easy that when God begins to confront us, when he pushes against some of those deeply held values that we keep behind the facade, it's so easy to do this and walk away. I don't want to hear what that has to say because that's getting just a little too deep. It's getting a little too real to be comfy. So keep praying for an open mind. I mean, who are you trying to kid? Who am I trying to kid? Who are we trying to kid? And I love the way Paul summarizes this. He's, he's setting them up. He, he, he tells them, you know, this is who I am. I'm writing to, to you guys. You know me. Uh, this is who you are. You're the church. You've got so much going for you. But you're a stinking mess. But he ends. And, and I want to reread to you verse 17 from the message version. Theologian Eugene Peterson does a good job highlighting some of the themes that are going to come out in 1 Corinthians, uh, in his amplified version of verse 17. This is what he writes. God didn't send me, talking about Paul, out to collect a following for, for myself, but to preach the message of what he has done, collecting a following for him. And he didn't send me to do it with a lot of fancy rhetoric of my own, lest the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross, be trivialized into mere words. Paul doesn't want us to miss the powerful action at the center, Christ on the cross. If you look through verses 1 through 9, there's one word that pops up 10 times. That's a lot of real estate for a handwritten letter. <laughs> it's not an email. It's not copy-paste. Writing it out 10 times, Jesus. Why do we keep praying for an open mind? Why can we trust him? Why do we need to keep praying for an open mind? Because of Jesus Christ on the cross. God loves us so much that he became human, he entered into our broken messes, died on the cross for us to provide forgiveness, rose again to show that he can defeat death, even when we wanted nothing to do with him. Absolutely nothing to do with him. That kind of God who had become vulnerable to the point of death on a cross, I'll listen to whatever he has to say. I know he loves me, I know he wants my best, and I know he's got the power to bring it about. When we look at the cross, we, we, be, we begin to stand with realization. Ah, oh, how can I ever take credit for the good in my life when I look at the great good that comes to me th through the gospel? When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, 
we realize really how much farther we still have to go. When we look at the cross of Christ, we finally have hope. Hope. Because of the cross, life transformation is possible. That's the reason Paul writes this letter. You know it's a sign that there isn't hope? is a lack of communication. When you stop talking with someone and pursuing them, that means you've given up on them. But Paul is writing to the church in Corinth because he knows there's still hope for this church and there's still hope for us as we hear Paul's letter written even still to us. No more hypocrisy and fake smiles. We don't have to worry about restlessly keeping up the facade, but we can rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Isn't that what you want? be totally vulnerable, totally forgiven, and totally accepted. That's, that's what I want for me. That's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. That's what Paul wants for you. And Jesus came. And for Paul, that's enough. That's it. That's the big rock moment. Jesus Christ died for our messes. Every single one of us in here has a mess. No one in here, whether it's out of insecurity, no one of us in here comes in without our own messes, in need of Jesus to die for us. But then he rose again three days later physically in reality to really make us into something beautiful. You're the church. You've got so much going for you, but you're a stinking mess. Who are we trying to kid? Who are we trying to kid? And praise God he isn't finished with us yet, right? Because of the cross and because God came, died, and rose again, no one has to kid anyone anymore. You don't have to kid anyone anymore. What are you going to do? What do you want? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this letter. Thank you that it still speaks to us, it's still relevant. We find who we are. We find, man, we've got so much going for us, but also the freedom to be honest about the mess in our life. The mess in each of our lives. And we don't have to come with this facade and these fake smiles, but finally find the freedom to be real about that and to rest that you've paid for our messes on the cross. And through the resurrection of Jesus, life transformation is possible. You're making us into something beautiful if we continue to hear you and listen to you. God, you're good. May we remember that so we have ears to hear, hearts to understand, and minds that long to learn. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, before Jesus went to the cross, uh, he gave his followers a meal. A meal that reminds us of all the great good that God has given us in the gospel. And it's this gospel we proclaim to our senses of taste, of touch, and smell in the Lord's Supper. The gospel is that, and it's pictured in broken, common bread as a remembrance of Jesus' body broken for us. In common juice, we remember Jesus' blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're new here, let me explain a little bit how we do this together. Uh, For everyone who has proclaimed that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior, they're free to partake in the table. Um, If you are not a follower of Jesus, we ask that you would refrain. One, we're really excited you're here. 
Keep asking questions. Keep challenging us. Keep growing. We need to grow with you. You sharpen us. I hope you know that. Uh, But also use this time as prayer that Jesus would continue to reveal himself to you. If you do come, you're going to come down one of the two aisles. Circle around to the back. I feel like always a flight attendant when I do this. You circle around to the back. Go to one of our two communion stations. And you'll get in groups of four to six. Take the bread. Dip it in the juice. And then you'll partake together. Now we're going to do something though before we do that. We talked about remembering who we are. And providing now some space to be real. Before we come and partake of the Lord's Supper, we're going to have a time of silent prayer, silent confession. Um, And those three things we just talked about that we need to stop, start, and keep doing, we're going to provide space to do them right now between you and God. Um, If you've never prayed before, this is a good time to start the conversation. You're talking to the God of the universe. You're not equals, and yet he longs to hear from you. And he longs to start the conversation. And so in this time, maybe you need to ask for forgiveness for the times you've too often taken credit for the good in your life, for the good that God has done in your life. Maybe you need to take this time to start finally admitting you have so much farther to go in which the Holy Spirit is growing you up into Jesus Christ. Or maybe, just maybe, you need to keep praying that God would give you an open mind to the truth of his word, that you would listen even though it may feel weird at times, it may feel strange, that he would build within you a trust to listen to his voice. So don't put it off another day. Start now. Start here. So we're going to spend about two minutes in silence for you to pray. And then I'm going to come back up and read the words of affirmation, which are the words of institution of the Lord's Supper, to remember that in all this, as we come confessing and praying, We have assurance of the forgiveness of Jesus if we receive it. Okay? So let's start, stop, and keep praying. Hear these words of forgiveness. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise, the promise of forgiveness in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, please come.